Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We'll also, um, we have some physical Bibles uh, scattered around the rooms and the little racks underneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, man, we would love for you, absolutely adore for you to take that one home. Uh, it's more valuable for us to, for, to have you reading it than for us to have it sitting on a bookshelf for a week. That's a terrible waste of a Bible, right? Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe that it's the primary means by which God uh, makes himself known to us as his creation. Like, we can, we can look at all the other things in creation. Uh, I mean, we've had a solar eclipse this week, and we've had a hurricane this week, right? Like, we can look at the creation and go, wow, our God is big, right? Uh, and, and there's all these kinds of things going on that, that we need to pay attention to, and we can see pictures of who God is and glimpses of who God is, but uh, on, an, on a saving level, on a uh, character-based level, God makes himself known to us through the scriptures, and so it's valuable for us if you start reading it on your own. So if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, please, 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 please take that one home. I'd rather buy new Bibles than for you to not have one, all right? So Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we have taken a couple of weeks off from our Ephesians series. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we celebrated the Lord's Supper together. We spent a good bit of time explaining that. Uh, and then last week, I was out of town with the team, our team to Ohio, and John Scoggins uh, stood up here and faithfully unpacked uh, Romans 12. Uh, and so it was a good time. I listened to the podcast. He talked about me way too much. All right? But here's the thing. It's time to move on, right? It's now Ephesians week. All right? We're ready to jump back into it, right? 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 Okay. Make him... Getting me, getting me a little worried. <laughs> Maybe John should come back up here and f- preach a few, like Romans 13. I don't know. All right. It's been a few weeks, uh, so maybe you're new, maybe you haven't been around a while, maybe you're just checking us out for the first time. Let me give you a rundown. Uh, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. Ephesus at that time was in, uh, is in modern-day Turkey, but at the time that, Ro- that Paul was writing this letter, about 60 to 62 AD, uh, the Roman Empire called that area of the world Asia. Right? There's nothing but ruins today. Uh, if you want to get on an airplane and fly there, it's the political climate in Turkey is not so great right now, uh, but you could technically go to the ruins of Ephesus and t- do the little sightseeing tour, pay your little money, and check the place out. Uh, uh, all you're going to see is a bunch of rocks kind of leaning over on the ground. All right? But it's I, I think it'd be cool, and one of these days, maybe God will let me go, all right? But at the time that Paul was writing this letter, Ephesus was a big old deal, all right? Uh, a lot of scholars believe it was probably the fourth or fifth biggest city in the world uh, during the first century. Like, hundreds of thousands of people lived in Ephesus at that time. It was a massive deal. It was a, a big deal politically. It was a big deal economically. It was a big deal culturally. And it was a big deal religiously. And a really big reason why it was a big deal religiously it was because of the Temple of Artemis. Do we have a picture this week? Nope. All right. I should have warned him. By the way, we're going to refer to that temple over and over again in this series. So just count it. All right. So the Temple of Artemis, it's okay. The Temple of Artemis was a massive, massive deal. There's nothing left of it today, uh, but back in its heyday in the first century, it was on what we would call the seven wonders of the ancient world list. You've heard of that before, right? The Pyramids of Giza, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, Hanging Babylon's of Garden. So there's nothing left of the temple. That's an artist's rendering of what the temple might have looked like. It's also scaled down from what I understand. It was a big deal. And Paul writes a letter to the church in the first century town of Ephesus. A church 
responsible for preaching the gospel faithfully in the shadow of that mighty and magnificent temple. That temple that had all the cultural sway behind it, that dictated all the mores of their community. Paul writes a letter to this little church in the shadow of this magnificent temple, and he opens up his letter in chapter 1 by unpacking how big and how majestic and how all-encompassing the plan of God is. That he is eternal and eternally working. The words he uses that is that he, his plan exists from before the foundation of the world. And that stands in stark contrast with the way that the Ephesian culture thought of kings and gods. Right? Kings and gods in their mind were capricious and kind of making it up as they go along. And they were always serving themselves. To be both eternal and and good? Well, that rings kind of nice in that kind of world, doesn't it? And so Paul writes his letter and unpacks how big and how good our God is. So y'all ready to jump back in? Ephesians 2. <laughs> you responded better that time. Ephesians 2. Let's look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So a few weeks ago, uh, JB helped us understand the first five verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and he did so by contrasting life and death right? That that we are spiritually dead and God makes us spiritually alive. So JB helped us understand a few weeks ago this life and death contrast, but we need to walk through it again just just to point some stuff out. Um, Paul just mentioned in the first three verses that we are culpable or responsible on three different levels. Did you catch it? Like what were they? The first one was that we follow the course of this world. And JB helped us understand that, right? That we kind of fall in line with the way that the rest of the culture is going. And this this is sometimes even without us really knowing about it. Like, like this isn't just a a one-time deal. This isn't a, a, I have made the decision that I'm going to bend on this. This is that we find ourselves over and over and over again falling into a rut that that a culture that is very much okay with being opposed to godliness, we'll say it that way. We find ourselves falling into that rut over and over again, even without understanding it, without knowing that we've done so. That's not the only way we're culpable. Look at the next one. He also says that we have been deceived by the prince of the power of the air. That's a nickname for Satan. Not a good thing. Because we've been deceived, right? That's what happened in the garden. There was temptation through deception, right? Eat this and you'll be like God. The reason why God doesn't want you to eat is because you don't, because he doesn't want you to be like him, right? But that's not just a one time, a long, long time ago kind of thing. That's a, that's an everyday kind of thing, right? How many times have you found yourself enjoying something that you later realized wasn't pleasing to God at all? 
Yeah, we've got this thing in us that flocks to celebrate things that actually never were pleasing, but for some reason we, we took the bait. Paul says that we fall into the rut of a culture going the wrong direction, that we have been deceived, but there's also another level that we're culpable. It says that we carry out the natural desires of our flesh, that we are naturally inclined toward disobedience. Don't we all have stories where we did something explicitly because we were told not to? Am I the only one? Okay, I may have more stories than other people, but I'm not the only one. I've got kids. Listen, no one in my house has taught my kids how to bite, kick, and scream to get what they want. Unless Katie is doing it behind my back. It's in them, right? No one had to teach them that. Well, because they saw it on a cartoon or played some terrible video game or they're not in school yet. No one taught my kids how to do that stuff. It's in them, and it comes out of them, right? We're not simply deceived. That is true. But the Bible also teaches that we are by our own nature opposed to God. By default. Our hearts are set against them. So Paul's argument in the first three verses of Ephesians 2 here is that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what angle you want to look at things. We're guilty. Like approach this from whatever vantage point you want. We're not getting out of this clean. We're guilty. God's wrath is prepared for those who don't live up to God's righteousness. That doesn't strike us as something that we immediately respond to as good, right? Like, no one's excited about God's wrath. And everyone thinks that God's wrath is deserved for a list of other people we don't like. We fail to internalize how it's prepared for you. Why? Because at the end of the day, I'm a glory thief. I still hang on to the reality that I would really like for some of that glory to belong to me. God's wrath is not capricious, it's not misguided, it's the exact appropriate response to a world full of glory thieves. But then verse 4 happens. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul tells us that God is not only just, but that he is also rich in mercy. 
And because he is rich in mercy, he loves us with a great love. And because of that great love, he takes those glory thieves who are dead and deserve to stay dead, and he instead makes them alive. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, the Bible teaches that to be spiritually dead is to be separated from God. That's what happened in the garden, right? Adam and Eve are cast out of God's presence. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. So what does it mean to be spiritually alive then? Am I tipping my cards too early? Feels like I'm tipping my cards too early. Verse 6. Look back at verse 4 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, Because God is rich in mercy, he loves us with a great love. And as an act of charity, grace, that's what, the Greek word for grace is charis. He takes spiritually dead people and he makes them alive. And verse 6 says that to be made spiritually alive is to be reconciled with God forever. If spiritually dead is to be separated from him, then to be spiritually alive is to be brought back into right relationship with him, right? It's to be brought back in right relationship. Now look at verse 7 because this is where it gets interesting. What are our first two words? I warned you. The phrase so that is an incredibly important phrase and it's incredibly more important in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I told you that it's going to come up in some incredibly important places in this letter. Here's an important place. The phrase so that if you're for some reason completely new here is what we call a conditional statement. It affects the values of two terms. If I say, I'm going to do blank so that blank can happen, it doesn't matter what that first blank is. It is now a means to a greater end, okay? Whatever that first blank is, it is the tool by which you attain the far better thing coming after the phrase so that. So Paul just said that even though we deserve God's wrath, Because we are culpable on layer after layer after layer after layer of our own guilt. That God takes those who are spiritually dead and he instead unites them back to himself and makes them spiritually alive so that. That's a means to a greater end. So what's the greater end? So that in the coming ages, he, Jesus, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. J.B. walked us a few weeks ago through the reality that the gospel is found in six letters at the beginning of verse 4. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. What I want us to see this morning is that the prize of the gospel, the prize of the gospel is found in six letters at the beginning of verse 7 so that there is a reason he brought you from death to life. So what's the reason? That we would be with him in the coming ages and that he might show for us the immeasurable riches. Oh, hear me, Nashville Baptist Church, the prize of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ is not now, nor will it ever be, heaven. It's not heaven. I mean, heaven's great and all, but it's not heaven. The prize of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. He's not some means to a greater end. Are you kidding me? He is the end. The prize of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not heaven. It is Jesus. Does that mean we don't believe in a place called heaven? No, of course we do. But the very thing that makes heaven so special is because that's the place where we get to be with him forever. Never more broken by the fallenness of this world. Never more interrupted and stained by my ineptitude and my sin. I get him and I get him in his fullness. Jesus is not the means to a greater end. He is the end. He is the reward. Paul here in verse 7 says that a major amount of our time in a heaven to come is going to be devoted to sitting at his feet as he unfolds for us in greater and greater detail, layer after layer, just how marvelous and just how gracious and just how merciful and just how loving he has been to us. That a great amount of our time in a heaven to come is going to be spent sitting at his feet marveling at how good he is. And with a pastor's heart, I want to press this morning. If that sounds like a letdown to you, we may have a problem. If the prospect of sitting at his feet forever in awe of who he is and what he has done feels like you're being robbed of some greater joy, we may, we may not be talking about a biblical heaven. If the prospect of that heaven is really about celebrating Jesus and what he has done, it's not really about us reuniting with past loved ones or finally being rid of that chronic pain or disease or being rewarded for our faithfulness here, if that feels like a bait and switch to you, that feels like you're not getting everything you were hoping for, maybe we should have a chat. Now don't mishear me, all those things will be present in a heaven to come, but they pale in comparison. And if our hearts flock to them, if our hearts and minds cherish those things over and above him, then maybe we're not talking about a real heaven here. Maybe we're talking about something that's in our own imagination. Paul says, Paul says that Jesus is not the means to his valuable stuff. Jesus is the prize. To be made spiritually alive is to be completely, fully, forever reconciled to he who is life. And this reality affects a ton of stuff around here. It affects how we... <laughs> his Bible app reads to him. <laughs> Somebody might have to help. It's okay. Somebody may have to help him figure out how to turn off his audio. <laughs> <laughs> we love you Roger by the way I really wish I had a Bible app that read to me that's awesome where was I? I don't know where I am 
Jesus is not the means to his valuable stuff. He is the prize. Now, I was going to tell you that this affects a lot of things that we do around here. It affects uh, how we structure our leadership team. It affects how we plan major programs of the church. Like we're getting ready to launch a children's ministry stuff here on Wednesday nights. This is a direct impact on what we think is important in our children's ministry stuff on Wednesday nights. Right? We're, we're not interested in teaching kids a bunch of morals. We, we want them to know Jesus, right? It's going to affect everything we do. It affects dumb little stuff, like which songs we choose to sing on a Sunday morning. Like, there's certain songs I won't let JB play, like even really popular worship stuff that's out on the radio right now. It's like JB can pull off some stuff that we won't let him play here because at the end of the day, it misses the boat on this. To celebrate all of Jesus' stuff but not celebrate Jesus, not what we're about here. But I'm not just talking about the new stuff, right? There's some old stuff for some of our more experienced saints that you love dearly that I won't let them play either. Can I just be honest? I know I'm going to pick a fight. I hate Beulah Land. I hate Beulah Land. You want to know why? Two verses that celebrate how awesome heaven is and never once mentions Jesus. Sorry. It's lacking. We won't let him play it here. This affects all kinds of things. All of those things in a heaven to come can be great. Th- those things are typically pulled from things in the Bible that are true. It's not wrong to point those things out. It's not wrong to celebrate those things. It's not long, wrong to long for those things. That's okay. But if our hearts and our minds flock to that and cherish that over and above the value of Jesus himself, we've missed the boat entirely. We've missed the boat. And again, to push as the loving pastor. If we cherish those things over and above him, you may not get to see them. Because heaven is not a place for people who love Jesus' stuff. It's a place for people who love Jesus supremely. But this is an exegetical series, so we've got to move on to verse 8. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul here says that we gain access to grace by faith, right? And if we stop there, we're left in a weird place. Because what that sounds like is that God does the heavy lifting of atonement, and then we come in and do our 1% and we call it faith. Some of you are looking at me kind of cockeyed because you, you hear that that sounds wrong, right? So I'll ask the elephant in the room question. Is faith work, thereby making Christianity a semi-works-based religion? The answer is no. So obviously our definition of grace and our understanding, sorry, our definition of faith and our understanding of faith ought to come in a form that it can't be misunderstood as work, Right? So what did Paul say? Because he hasn't left that door open to us, has he? Verse 9. Or sorry, the end of verse 8. And this is not your own doing, semicolon, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul here says that even our faith is ultimately a gift from God. That even the trust 
that he is who he is and that he will do exactly what he says he will do is not us mustering something to depend on him, but is actually a gift from him. Faith isn't work. Well, let's just play the game for a second and say it was. Right? What if I was responsible for my 1%? Anybody think I'm strong enough to pull it off forever? I'm not. Like faith, sure, but for how long? Like we have to keep this up all day? What if I have a bad moment? What if somebody cuts me off in traffic? Am I trusting God in that moment? Like what if I have a bad month? Well, let's really push here. What if I have a bad millisecond? If I'm responsible for 1%, what happens during that one millisecond? There's a problem there, right? And in God's goodness, he is accounted for that very thing. I mean, hey, I got a little, little girl at our house right now. I'm used to playing pretend uh, on a regular basis, so let's just play pretend, all right? Let's say for a second that I had the moral, uh, the moral ability and the... the physical, emotional, mental stamina to pull it off, right? Let's say that I could absolutely nail my 1% from the moment that I met Jesus to the moment he brought me home. I'm going to be walking through the gates of glory with my chest puffed up for my 1%, aren't I? You any different? Hear me, Nashville Baptist Church. No one in heaven will be celebrating themselves. No one. I did it! Come on, come on, guys. A pie. Let's celebrate. No one's going to be celebrating themselves in a heaven to come. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ and his heaven are not about me and they're not about you. They're about Jesus. The star of a heaven to come is most assuredly not Stephen Woodard. Oh, Lord, help us. What a pathetic way to spend eternity. It's not about you either. And all of his stuff will be good stuff, but we take a back seat to he who is eternally good. The good giver of all those things is infinitely more valuable than the things themselves. Paul says that even our faith is a gift from God. Does that mean that we're some mindless puppet? Does that mean we're some, you know, our decision to follow him is on autopilot and we're not really responsible for anything? No, what I am saying is that for those of us who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus, that our God is big enough to do something in our heart to cause you to see his goodness and let go of the pew in front of you when you made that decision to follow him. What I'm saying is that our God is big enough and good enough, loving enough to start working in your heart before you were even aware of it. He has not left you to your own devices. But I, but I, but I. The more honest I am with my own soul, the more I realize how desperately I need him to work on my behalf. Because if any of this is left up to me, I am in a load of trouble. And it is by his grace and in his goodness because he loves us with a great love that 
any of this is possible. He loves you effectually, even before you had the ability to love him in return. How good is our God? This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the church at Ephesus, not only to the church at Ephesus, not only does an eternally working God stand in stark contrast to the, the culture around them, but so does the, the reality that a God would love them deeply in spite of themselves. Right? Like, just picture in your head what it would mean to, to be a, a worshiper, follower of Artemis in the first century. Like, you, you really want her to bless something, so you, you gather your sacrifice, and you take it to the temple, and you hope that she's gonna, you're going to catch her on a good day, right? And then instead of killing you, she's going to accept your sacrifice, and maybe, just maybe, bless you in some kind of temporary way. The God of the Bible, though. He's neither capricious, nor concerned too much about the temporary. And instead of hoping that you brought the right kind of sacrifice in the right kind of moment, caught him on a positive day, instead he pursues you. He draws you to himself with a gentle hand. That he loves you with a great love in spite of your failures, in spite of your foibles, says, I'm going to make that one mine. And instead of giving you some temporary blessing, no, 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 that will not do. I'm going to give them myself. Now and extending all the way into eternity. The true God puts Artemis to shame. Who cares about sad little Artemis when you got Yahweh? Who cares about Artemis when you have Jesus? There is no limit to our God's goodness. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? For those of you who are followers of Jesus, our response today is to press into a God who is infinitely more valuable than all of his dumb stuff. And that's saying a lot because some of his stuff is really cool. We press into a God who is infinitely more valuable than his stuff. No matter how cool that stuff is, it doesn't compare to him, so we press in. We line up our hearts and our lives in such a way that they bear testimony to who it is we ultimately value and where it is we ultimately find our rest. Second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be a chance for you to respond in whatever way God's calling you. Maybe you're here today, though, and you're not a follower of Jesus. To you, man, I, I hope you hear me say over and over again, that we are glad you're here. We hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. Maybe today is the day that you will trust him for the very first time. Where you will let go of the false-minded, won't ever actually work like you think it will, ability to fix yourself. And instead trust him. Maybe today is the day you repent of your sin and call upon him as Lord. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. It's a chance for everyone in this room to respond to God however 
it is he's calling us to respond. So maybe for, for you, the, the response is that you trust him today. You follow him. We're going to have some people down here to, to talk if you want to talk. Whether you're responding by following Jesus for the first time, or maybe you're joining our church, or maybe you're, you want to pursue baptism, or whatever it is, we got people to talk if you want to talk. So let's pray. God, you are good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for loving me in spite of me. Thank you for being a God who pursues and gifts faith. God, would you give us the courage to respond how you're calling us this morning? Each and every one of us knows where, where we need the next step to, to be and what that needs to look like, and I think a lot of times we're fearful of that. But you prove yourself over and over and over again to be good be worthy of our trust and worthy of our pursuit. God, would you draw people to yourself right now? Would you open up hearts to know you, to love you, to pursue you, God?